Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which brings us to this week's episode, a review of 1984's fantasy collaboration with author Peter Straub, The World-Hopping Journey of Discovery, Loss, Magic, Love, and Strength. Today, we examine the story of Jack Sawyer, the young boy who set off on a quest to find the Talisman. The Talisman stands out from King's other works. I know that he isn't the only author, but I'll get to that in a minute. As we all know by this point, he has been labeled a horror writer, even though he's already dabbled in works that have demonstrated just as much talent for creating stories set within the genres of post-apocalyptic, dramatic, thrillers, and science fiction. With the Talisman, King, with Straub as his co-pilot, steers the ship directly into the realm of fantasy. It's an important novel in King's career, because as we'll see later in the podcast, it's full of Stephen Kingisms. Kingisms, for first-time listeners, are the traits and tropes and patterns you'll find from one King book to the next. With this novel, he's pulling from what he's built before, and he's gearing up for the climax to the first phase of his career, which will culminate with the publication of It. Here, we'll see the staples of magic, the boyhood hero, the otherworldly threat, the vileness that only adulthood can bring, and so forth. I don't want to get too far into that, as I'll address these tropes in the Stephen Kingism section. But as I've said in previous episodes, King's early work seemed to be a rough draft for the novel It, and this novel shares many of the same DNA strands as the later book. Furthermore, for Dark Tower fans, this novel is significant when placing King's magnus opus into context. Now don't worry, because I'm definitely going to get to that later as well. Now with all of this said, this novel cannot be placed at the feet of Stephen King alone. There's someone else guiding the pen here, and that's Peter Straub. For those of you who don't know, Peter Straub is an acclaimed novelist, and while not a household name like King, he's a literary force to be reckoned with. He made his splash with 1979's Ghost Story. He's written such novels as Shadowland, Floating Dragon, Coco, Mystery, which happens to be a personal favorite of mine, The Throat, Mr. X, and others. When I first read The Talisman, I had read most of the aforementioned novels, and I swear I could identify the shift in the text when one author took over from the other. Now, the narrative is seamless. Maybe I just imagined it as a kid, or maybe my eye for critique was sharper. Regardless, Peter Straub is a fantastic writer, and as evidenced by both this novel and its sequel, Black House, he works incredibly well with Stephen King. Now here is my claim. All love for The Dark Tower notwithstanding, The Talisman is King's greatest film never made. How has this never become a theatrical release, a miniseries, or a limited television show is beyond me, especially in the day and age of the young adult novel factory that we live in. This is an inspiring fantasy of wish fulfillment, the supernatural heir to Huckleberry Finn, a story that leaves you breathless one minute and crying the next. Not only is this the greatest Stephen King and Peter Straub film never made, it's also the greatest Steven Spielberg movie never made. Everything about this story screams Spielberg to me. In his hands, the sense of wonder and magic would surely make for a masterpiece. In fact, he was so drawn to the story that he optioned the rights for a TNT miniseries in the early 2000s, but due to budgetary concerns, it fell apart, which is good in the sense that back then, television events were still being modeled after the miniseries structure, whereas now, television narratives have proven to be the most critically revered and buzzed-about methods of storytelling, 
with series like True Detective and Fargo as prime examples of what a showrunner can do with a story told over a 10-week period. Now, while I'd love to see the adventures, trials, and heartbreak of Jack Sawyer on the big screen, the success of televised genre pieces such as Game of Thrones proves that a theatrical release isn't the crown jewel of live-action adaptations that it once was, and a story like The Talisman is better suited for a lengthy television season. Come on, HBO. Make it happen, would you? I mean, you gave us 12 hours of Justin Thoreau punching walls and talking to a deer. If you can greenlight that, you can certainly go give the go-ahead for this. So before I begin um, the, the actual analysis, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so that I have a uh, foundation upon which I can build my review. So uh, just a heads up uh, for the Wikipedia summary, it is not nearly as extensive as pretty much any of the Wikipedia summaries that I've read for any of the podcasts. And, you know, so on one hand, I'm, I'm kind of slamming Wikipedia, but then again, I'm not really doing anything about it, so I, I really can't complain. Uh, so the Wikipedia summary. Jack Sawyer, 12 years old, sets out from Arcadia Beach, New Hampshire, in a bid to save his mother, who is dying from cancer, by finding a crystal called the Talisman. Jack's journey takes him simultaneously through the American heartland and the territories a strange fantasy land which is set in a universe parallel to that of Jack's America. Individuals in the territories have twinners, or parallel individuals in our world. Twinners' births, deaths, and, it's uh, intimated, other major life events are usually paralleled. Twinners can also flip or migrate to the other world, but only share the body of their alternate universe's analog. That's not true. Not everyone can flip. Some twinners can flip. When flipped, the twinner, or the actual person, will automatically start speaking and thinking the language of where they are flipping into subconsciously. In rare instances, such as Jack's, a person may die in one world, but not in the other, making the survivor single-natured, with the ability to switch back and forth, body and mind, between the two worlds. Jack is taught how to flip by a mysterious figure known as Speedy Parker, who is the twinner of a royal guardsman named Parkus in the territories. Now, I just made a correction here. Um, the Wikipedia states that Sweetie Parker is a gunslinger named Parkus in the territories. That is not true. He is a royal guardsman, and I'm going to get to the whole gunslinger business um, later on. In Parkus's world, the beloved queen, Laura Do... How do you pronounce it? De, De Loessian, sorry, the twinner of Jack's mother, a movie actress known as the Queen Bee of the Movies, is dying as well. Various people help or hinder Jack in his quest. Of particular importance are the werewolves, known simply as wolves, who inhabit the territories. These are not the savage killers of tradition. They serve as royal herdsmen or bodyguards, and can sometimes under stress voluntarily change to a wolf form in addition to facing an involuntary transformation that lasts about three days at the time of the full moon. A 16-year-old wolf, simply named Wolf, is accidentally pulled into America by Jack Sawyer and adopts Jack as his pack, serving as his companion. Wolf is extremely likable, kind, loyal, and friendly, much like a dog, though his wolf nature shows through on occasion. On the other hand, some wolves have joined the malevolent faction which is trying to stop Jack. As the story goes back and forth between the territories and the familiar United States, or American territories as Jack comes to call them, Jack escapes from one life-threatening situation after another, 
accompanied by Wolf and later by his childhood companion friend, Richard. Jack must retrieve the talisman before it falls into the hands of evil schemer Morgan Sloat, Richard's father, who we later learn was Jack's father's business partner before arranging to have the latter murdered. He wants to seize the business from Jack's mother. Morgan Sloat's twinner, Morgan of Oris, also plans to seize the territories in the event of Queen Laura's death. So, what the Wikipedia is missing here is the specifics. Um, it, it doesn't go into detail um, the events as they occur. Uh, it doesn't talk about Oatley. It doesn't talk about Elroy. It doesn't talk about Sunny Gardner. It doesn't talk about Osmond. It doesn't talk about the Blasted Lands. It doesn't talk about um, Thayer School. It doesn't talk about... Uh, really much of Arcadia, and it doesn't talk about the Agent Court Hotel. Uh, it doesn't really talk about anything. It, it just gives a plot synopsis, not the specifics that, that normally the, the Wikipedia summaries do. So anyone out there in the Stephen King universe, you know, um, hey, feel free to, uh, to add those specifics. So now that that's out of the way, here we go. I'm going to jump right in and just discuss the, the, the opening how it starts. Now, in the very first sentence, Stephen King and Peter Straub foreshadow Jack's identity as the convergence of two individuals of two worlds by introducing him standing, quote, where the water and land come together, end quote. The idea of mirroring presents itself as in the concluding section of the novel. The authors rewrite the description with Jack at the end of his journey standing on the Pacific coast. Now, the thesis of the entire novel is found within that first paragraph, with Jack's life described as shifting, and his mother was moving him through the world, twitching from place to place. Duality is presented right away, from the repetition of Jack's mother running, running, and Jack standing between an amusement park and the Al Brahma Inn, caught between the world of Speedy and the world of his mother. As we meet him, he's stuck between death as represented by his father, uncle, and mother, and will soon be life as he lights out for the territories. As for death, our authors write on page 9. His father was dead, Uncle Tommy was dead, his mother might be dying. He felt death here too at Arcadia Beach, where it spoke through telephones in Uncle Morgan's voice. It was nothing as cheap or obvious as the melancholy feel of a resort in the off-season, where one only kept stumbling over the ghost of summer's past. It seemed to be in the texture of things, a smell on the ocean breeze. He was scared, and he had been scared for a long time. Being here, where it was so quiet, had only helped him to realize it, had helped him to realize that maybe death had driven all the way up I-95 from New York, squinting out through cigarette smoke and asking him to find some bop on the car radio. To keep with the theme of the duality, Jack is also described as being born with an old head but feeling very young. Again, the authors play with the duality found within Jack. The off-season setting of Arcadia reinforces the out-of-place feeling Jack has as he returns to his place of conception in the midst of his mother's death. Beginnings and endings. An ending which will birth a new Jack, a new life, and a new world. It's a setting, frozen time, one that can't fulfill its intended purpose, much like Jack himself. He needs to flip, to begin his quest, to figuratively let the cart plunge down the roller coaster. Jack even considered Speedy and Sloat to be fundamentally opposed. On page 30, 
A gull screeched, a wave bounced hard gold light towards him, and Jack saw Uncle Morgan and his new friend Speedy as figures almost allegorically opposed, as if they were statues of night and day, stuck up on plinths, moon and sun, the dark and the light. What Jack had understood as soon as he had known that his father would have liked Speedy Parker was that the ex-bluesman had no harm in him. Uncle Morgan, now he was an, another kind of being altogether. Uncle Morgan lived for business, for deal-making and hustling, and he was so ambitious that he challenged every even faintly dubious call in a tennis match. So ambitious, in fact, that he cheated in the penny anti-card games his son had now and then coaxed from him into joining. At least Jack thought that Uncle Morgan had been cheating in a couple of their games, not a man who thought that defeat demanded graciousness. Night and day, moon and sun, dark and light, and the black man was the light in these polarities. And when Jack's mind had pushed him this far, all that panic he had fought off in the hotel's tidy gardens swarmed through him again. He lifted his feet and ran. With this book, we don't have to wait for a momentous supernatural event. The sublime qualities of the story are present early on, playing in plain sights in the background, whether it be the weather vane rooster taking flight, the prophetic dreams of Jack, the instant connection between Speedy and the boy, or the way the grinning gull had familiar eyes that seemed to follow him while eating the crab. Subtle moments, but enough to let the supernatural elements ease over us, so that when the first flip to the territories happens, it's almost expected. After Jack is hit with the certainty that his mother will die, he feels the need to seek out Speedy. First, the realization of Lily's impending death is handled well by the two authors who I assume, having never experienced it, captured the feeling of hopelessness in the situation, with Jack wondering about who will take care of him when she's gone. By this point in the novel, he's living in a run-down world, one about to collapse into itself completely, an amusement park without any customers, a seaside resort without any vacationers, a beach with autumnal sunshine. The setting, of course, is representative of Lily's health, a throwback to classic literature when the land and the reigning ruler of the land were synonymous with one another. The queen is vibrant, the crops are bountiful, and vice versa. The queen is sick, the land is barren. Here we have Lily, queen of the bees, and her land, the place in which she spent the best three weeks of her life, is dying. As Jack seeks out answers from Speedy, King and Straub make it clear that this will be a full fantasy novel. Now, I'm going to take a moment here to clarify. For whatever reason, there is still confusion out there about what constitutes fantasy, horror, and sci-fi. For many people, the three genres are synonymous with one another, especially sci-fi and fantasy. Now, that probably isn't helped by the fact that many bookstores, the ones that still exist anyway, still categorize their sections by lumping the two genres together with a heading of science fiction slash fantasy. Science fiction is a genre, is a genre that's based on some aspect of science, hence the name. Horror tends to deal with supernatural events encroaching upon more familiar existence, and fantasy has a lot to do with magic. Now, these are very brief definitions, and I completely understand that I'm, I'm ignoring the many subtle distinctions within each genre. But until this point, King has dealt mostly with horror. Now, I would argue that Carrie and Firestarter are science fiction novels, and The Dead Zone is a thriller, but let's agree that he has made a name for himself as a horror author. The Stand has elements of horror, a supernatural threat, um, science fiction, man-made virus, and fantasy. The heroes embark upon a quest through an unfamiliar landscape. But with the talisman, he jumps fully into the realm of fantasy. The biggest indicator is the emphasis on the chosen one, the boy 
hero slash king. By the point of publication, one of fantasy's most beloved contributions is C.S. Lewis's Narnia series that revolves around children answering the call to adventure in a foreign land. The only ones that can save the day are the children. Sound familiar? In a sci-fi or horror novel, there are still structures in place um, within a society that we can understand to some extent, a society that would have responses to the threats that arise, whether it be the police, a secret society, or a group of adults who have banded together. In the scene with Speedy, Speedy mentions that the queen is dying and she needs saving. It's up to Jack, because it has to be up to Jack. This is a fantasy novel that follows Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which will follow in a second. Now, English majors, feel free to skip ahead. The hero's journey is a 12-step process, a blueprint from which many of our known and beloved stories are built, including Star Wars, The Lion King, Superman, and others. So, it, it starts off with um, what's called the ordinary world. Okay, In this case, the ordinary world is depicted um, as Arcadia, New Hampshire. Now, the hero, uneasy, uncomfortable, or unaware, is introduced sympathetically so that audience can identify with the situation or dilemma. The hero is shown against a backdrop of environment, heredity, and personal history. Some kind of polarity in the hero's life is pulling in different directions and causing stress. Um, the breakdown of the hero's journey, by the way, uh, this specific breakdown can be found at uh, thewritersjourney.com. So part two of the, 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 the process is the call to adventure. In uh, The Talisman, Jack begins to remember a land which he at the time refers to as the daydreams. Now the call to adventure is something that shakes up the situation, either from external pressures or from something rising up from the deep within, so that the hero must face the beginnings of change. Uh, number three is the refusal of the call. The hero feels the fear of the unknown and tries to turn away from the adventure, however briefly, Alternately, another character may express the uncertainty and danger ahead. So, in the case of the Talisman, Jack rejects the notion of the daydreams and runs away from Speedy, who, whose proximity and discussion with Jack is prompting memories to surface. Uh, part four is meeting with the mentor. The hero comes across a seasoned traveler of the worlds who gives him or her training, equipment, or advice that will help on the journey. Our hero reaches within to a source of courage and wisdom. So here, he makes the decision to meet Speedy, who he's already met at this point, um, in order to learn the truth. Part 5 is crossing the threshold. At the end of Act 1, the hero commits to leaving the ordinary world and entering a new region or condition with unfamiliar rules and values. In the case of the Talisman, this is when Jack flips the territories and begins his quest to save his mother. Part 6 is Test Allies and Enemies. The hero is tested and sorts out allegiances in the special world. Learn about the territories, encounters Osmond, Elroy, and ultimately Wolf. Part 7 is Approach. The hero and newfound allies prepare for the major challenge in the special world. In this case, Jack attempts to adjust to Wolf. Um, living in our world. Number eight is the ordeal. Near the middle of the story, our hero encounters a central space in the special world and confronts death or faces his or her greatest fear. Out of the moment of death comes a new life. In this case, it's Jack and Wolf being held prisoner at Sunlight Gardener's home for wayward boys um, and the scene in which Wolf dies. Uh, 
Number nine is the reward. The hero takes possession of the treasure won by facing death. There may be celebration, but there is also danger of losing the treasure again. Jack reunites with Richard and crosses the Blasted Lands. While the treasure isn't necessarily at hand, he's closer than ever before. Ten is the road back. About three-fourths of the way through the story, the hero is driven to complete the adventure, leaving the special world to be sure the treasure is brought home. Often a chase scene signals the urgency and danger of the mission. This is when Jack enters the Agent Court Hotel. Now, um, numbers 9, 10, 11, and 12 are a little bit fuzzy. They don't necessarily adhere perfectly to the, the, the structure. Number 11 is the resurrection. At the climax, the hero is severely tested once more on the threshold of home. He or she is purified by a last sacrifice, another moment of death and rebirth, but on a higher and more complete level. By the hero's action, the polarities that were in conflict at the beginning are finally resolved. Now that is when Jack claims the talisman and defeats the villains, and then he returns with the elixir, which is number 12. The hero returns home or continues the journey, bearing some element of the treasure that has the power to transform the world as the hero himself has been transformed. That is when Jack returns home with the talisman and saves Lily. So Jack answers the call to action, and before he lights out for the territories, he has that one more meeting with Speedy, who gives him an atlas. Now, as I read it, I just I wondered um, if this was movie made into a movie today, how different that scene would play. Now, in a world where every phone has a GPS, the atlas seems so foreign to our current society. The atlas might as well have just come from the territories. You could explain the cell phone away, certainly, that Morgan can trace it, so he'd need to ditch it, but... When Speedy pulled out that atlas, it just made me think about how pervasive um, technology has become in our world. Now, the authors introduce us in full to the territories, and we see how small Jack is within both of these worlds, especially once he arrives in Oatly. I would say that the true beginning of his adventure comes with his stop to Oatly. Here he learns the, that alien dangers are present in both worlds, and he'll never be safe in either one of them. In Oatly, he's basically kidnapped and held prisoner by Smokey Updike, the ruler of Updike's Oatly Tap. It's such a fairy tale convention for the child to be held prisoner, and this connotation helps reinforce Jack's vulnerability as we think of other famous imprisoned children like Hansel and Gretel, or Pinocchio, which I'll get to later. With his time at the bar under Smokey's thumb, King and Straub remind us that the greatest danger to a child isn't a supernatural threat, but the very real threat of adulthood danger. But it isn't enough to beat him down. He may be beat down, but he's never beaten. On page 185, King and Straub reveal Jack's inner strength and defiance. As it had against Osmond, Jack's fury suddenly rose up. That sort of fury, closely linked as it is to a sense of hopeless injustice, is perhaps never as strong as it is at 12. College students sometimes think they feel it but it is usually little more than an intellectual echo. This time, it boiled over. I'm not your dog, so don't you treat me like I am, Jack said, and took a step towards Smokey Updike on legs that were still rubbery with fear. Surprised, possibly even flabbergasted, by Jack's totally unexpected anger, Smokey backed up a step. Soon after, he's confronted by um, a scene-stealing monster, Elroy. Uh, this is a great scene. And uh, it's necessary because with Elroy, Elroy represents really just the unknown and the dangers of the territories. Uh, it's, 
I can't, you know, I mean, I want it, I, I want to talk about it. in my notes, it says talk about this scene, and other than just saying it's awesome, it's an awesome scene, I can't really talk that much about it, other than it's just awesome. <laughs> uh, Elroy, I guess, represents the boogeyman figure because he's referenced throughout the, the text, and Jack ultimately has his vengeance on Elroy, and it's a pivotal moment in, in the novel. So it, it that scene couldn't happen if this scene didn't happen, and it's done so, so well. Now, as Jack flips between one world to the next, he begins to realize there are consequences for world hopping. Disasters can strike when flipping. Uh, a great decision on the part of our authors in order to create more tension and place some restraints on Jack's abilities. Without the fear of harming innocents, Jack could flip over any time, right? Um, any time danger just presents itself. Much like kryptonite functions to add increased tension in a story by diminishing Superman's powers, the constraints of this realization strip Jack of his ability to get out of any situation easily. But when Jack flips over the next time after Oatley, he meets Wolf, and the next act of the story begins. With Wolf, Jack finds a level of safety on the road that he hadn't had up until this point, but it's a fleeting type of safety, as the dangers grow to match the strength found within this friendship. Through Wolf, we learn of Morgan's evil doing, stealing werewolves, and it's immediately dropped, left to hang in the reader's mind. Morgan has werewolves that can't be good. Also not good, the knowledge that despite the humor found within the scene of learning that the plural of the creatures are wolves, not wolves. We learn that like any werewolf, he will change in the full moon, and because he can't be allowed near the livestock, we know that should the change occur, Jack will be in danger. It's Chekhov's werewolf. Wolf, of course, is forced into Jack's quest with the arrival of Morgan in one of the book's most thrilling scenes in which Morgan forces his way from our world into the territories. We get to see the effect with a horrible universal ripping sound, the call of thunder, and the physical transformation as Morgan Sloat morphs into Morgan of Oris. Wolf's arrival in our world creates conflict within the story, within Jack, and between the two characters. Poor Wolf. It's heartbreaking, really. I mean, he just can't handle the sensations of this world, and his failures to do so threaten Jack's chances at reaching the talisman. It heightens the tension, as well as provide emotional response within the reader as our hearts break just a little at Wolf's complete helplessness in this world. Soon after they arrive back in our world, Jack learns two things. One, it was October 26th, and two, the full moon would take place on Halloween. Wolf's slow transformation creates an unpredictable ticking time bomb. Neither Jack nor the reader knows what's going to happen next. The werewolf begins to take over his friendly personality, and with Cycle of the Werewolf fresh in this reader's mind, my fear for Jack grew. Jack survives Wolf's transformation by allowing himself to be locked within a shed for three days. The shed itself is just the foreshadowing for the larger box in which he'll be imprisoned, the Sunlight Gardener scripture home for wayward boys. The two events, the shed and the home, might seem like disparate events, but they serve the themes of duality and repetition throughout the story. The imprisonment uh, happened once, so it has to happen again by the very concept of the novel itself. The events at Sonny's home are that much worse when you think about how free Wolf had been in the days leading up to it, wild and running with the moon. When riding in the car to the home, Jack crosses over the line from confident to arrogant, not overly concerned about their predicament, and sure that they'll be able to escape. It's this level of hubris that worries me as I reread this section. It's funny, I 
you know, I, I should be worried. I, st- I should feel anxious as I read because I know what's going to happen. But still, I want to reach through the book, grab Jack, shake him, and warn him to take this more seriously. The territories are the soul, or the territories is the soul of our world. It's land, a pure version of our own. So it's no surprise that just as good is magnified to great, bad is magnified to evil, as evidenced by Sunlight Gardener's Home for Wayward Boys, which causes Jack to think. Reality seemed to fold and buckle about Jack for a moment. He had felt that he had been jerked back into the territories, but now the territories were evil and threatening, and that foul smoke, jumping flames, and screams of tortured bodies filled the air. Jack and Wolf's arrival to the home is masterfully done, an event that coincides with the debut of a scene-stealing villain, Reverend Gardner himself, who is unsurprisingly the twinner of the devilishly mad right-hand man of Morgan himself, Osmond. With this reveal, we begin to understand the dangers that Jack and Wolf find themselves in. Jack and Wolf are quickly introduced to the dark mirror reflections of themselves, Sonny Singer for Jack, and the similarly one-syllabled Bast for Wolf. Bast, of course, is the name of an Egyptian cat deity. When Jack and Wolf begin to undergo the tribulations that come with Sunlight Gardner's Home for Wayward Boys, it makes for one of the book's most triumphant moments as fleeting as it may be, and that, of course, is the scene when Wolf finally has had enough of Bast. Hector Bast threw a whistling country boy roundhouse. It hit Wolf high on the right cheekbone, driving him backward three or four steps. Donnie Keegan laughed his high, whinnying laugh, which Jack now knew was as often a signal of dismay as of glee. The roundhouse was a good heavy blow. Under the circumstances, I'm sorry, under other circumstances, the fight would probably have ended right there. Unfortunately for Hector Bast, it was the only blow he landed. He advanced confidently, his big fists up at chest height, and drove the roundhouse again. This time, Wolf's arm moved upward and outward to meet it. Wolf caught Hex's fist. Hex's hand was big. Wolf's hand was bigger. Wolf's fist swallowed Hex. Wolf's fist clenched. From within came a sound like small dry sticks first crackling, then breaking. Hex's confident smile first curdled, then froze solid. A moment later, he began to shriek. Shouldn't have hurt the herd, you bastard, Wolf whispered. Oh, your Bible this and oh, your Bible that. Wolf! And all you have to do is hear six verses of the Book of Good Farming to know you never crackle, never crunch, never hurt the herd. Heck Bast fell to his knees, howling and weeping. Wolf still held Heck's fist in his own, and Heck's arm angled up. Heck looked like he was giving a fascist, giving a Hail Hitler salute to his knees, on his knees. Wolf's arm was as rigid as stone, but his face showed no real effort. It was, except for the blazing eyes, almost serene. Blood began to drip out of Wolf's fist. It's fleeting, of course, because an act like that can't go unpunished, and Wolf is thrown into the box. It's a horrible scene to read. This out-of-place outworlder, helpless, screaming for his only friend, that friend unwilling to help, followed by Jack's realization that Wolf is dying due to his exposure to our world. The purpose of Sunlight's home is to crush the spirit, and what better way to do that but to crush the spirits of the readers as well as the characters. So it's no surprise that Jack decides to force himself to flip, even though he's out of juice, 
but all hope is squashed when they make it back to the territories. The territories, like I said before, is our world magnified, so it's no surprise that the horrors of Sunlight's home are ten times worse. In fact, as it was suggested before, the place is a literal hell, with fiery pits in which men are made to work, whipped by devilish-looking gargoyles. What comes next is a gripping scene in which Wolf transforms and begins slaughtering his way through Gardner's lackeys on his way to save Jack. Wolf's sacrifice allows Jack to escape. It's both the book's highlight as well as its lowest point. With anything else in the book, it comes in two, with two separate emotions, both at war with each other. The first is how engaging this sequence is, with Wolf transforming and taking out the bad guys. The second is the horror of knowing that Wolf is dying, getting murdered as he, as he saves Jack. You don't want to read it, but it's so damn thrilling you can't turn away. And then come the two pages that can turn a grown man to a blubbering baby. Um, can turn, did turn for me. Uh, and I challenge you not to do the same when Wolf finally completes his quest and saves Jack on pages 440 and 441 of the paperback edition. When he looked around again, Wolf was swaying in the middle of the carnage that had been Gardner's office. His eyes guttered pale yellow like dying candles. Something was happening to his face, to his arms and his legs. He was becoming Wolf again, Jack saw, and then understood fully what that meant. The old legends had lied about how only silver bullets could destroy a werewolf, but apparently about some things they did not lie. Wolf was changing back because he was dying. Wolf, no, he wailed, and managed to get to his feet. He got halfway to Wolf, slipped in a puddle of blood, went down to one knee, got up again. No! Jackie, the voice was low, guttural, little more than a growl, but understandable. And incredibly, Wolf was trying to smile. Jack knelt, turned him over. The hair was melting away from Wolf's cheeks with the eerie speed of time-lapse photography. His eyes had gone hazel again, and to Jack he looked horribly tired. Jackie. Wolf raised a bloody hand and touched Jack's cheek. Shoot you? Did he? No, Jack said, cradling his friend's head. No, Wolf. Never got me. Never did. I... Wolf's eyes closed and then opened slowly again. He smiled with incredible sweetness and spoke carefully, enunciating each word, obviously needing to convey this, if nothing else. I kept my herd safe. Yes, you did, Jack said, and his tears began to flow. They hurt. He cradled Wolf's shaggy, tired head and wept. Wolf took his hands gently as he held them. Jack could feel the hair melting from Wolf's palms. It was a ghostly, terrible sensation. I love you, Jackie. I love you too, Wolf, Jack said, right here and now. The book, uh, the book would be great. I'm sorry, the, the, the book would be good on the strength of the premise alone, but it was the character of Wolf that made it great. His death serves as the climax of the novel. Uh, we see Jack at his lowest point, now completely alone, left with the knowledge that he is ultimately responsible for the death of this innocent creature who never asked to come to this world. Jack then reconnects with Richard, and proof that there's more than coincidence at work, Jack learns that Richard's next-door neighbor is the son of Sunlight Gardener. 
The connections don't end there as strange things begin to occur at the Thayer School, leading to the moment when the dorm is emptied of everyone but Jack and Richard. When they try to rationalize how all of the kids left suddenly, Jack wonders if they're on another level of existence, which fans of the Dark Tower will recognize. Whatever level they're on causes the campus to twist and mutate all around them. It's never fully explained what's happening, other than the forces of Morgan have an ability to twist reality around them. The section concludes with the tease of the Blasted Lands and the coming of Osmond. The fillins are gathering together. While they may be separated by two worlds, they're as close as they're ever going to be, and all of their eyes are aimed at Jack. With the return to the territories, King and Straub revisit the um, revisit what Jason, Jack's twinner, means to this world through the character Anders, who falls in worship at the sight of Jack. This level of worship, combined with the phrase "for Jason's sake," and the and the and the idea, idea that Jack to the territories can be seen as a sort of resurrection of Jason, King and Straub have created a Jesus Christ analog with our main character. It's there. And not much is done with it. They don't explore the effects of religion, faith, or the perspective of either of these concepts through the eyes of this savior character. It's just kind of there. When Jack realizes that the blasted lands are the result of atomic testing, the stakes are now raised. Now we know specifically why the Morgans have to be stopped. The boys, once in the territories, take a scene-stealing journey through the blasted lands in a section where King and Straub clearly had fun coming up with ideas how to communicate the horrors of the irradiated wasteland. This eventually leads to an insane shootout with the wolves. I'm sorry, with the wolves. Um, It's a tense scene, right? It's an action-packed scene. And it's also funny, with moments like the wolf getting smushed by the door for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the alligator uh, thing stopping everything to just try and eat their grenade. And then comes the arrival of Ruel Gardner. And with him we get a creature that is so much worse than the werewolves, the goats, the alligators, and the gargoyles from the pit. Jack's horrified reaction overshadows his horror of the sights that he's seen in the Blasted Lands, which shows the wretchedness and wrongness of this thing that's clearly not human. Jack's question what was its mother encapsulates the horror of this character and reveals even more squalid aspects to Osmond's character. In the end, as Jack and Richard make their way to the Agent Court Hotel, it plays out like the book's greatest hits. The town is simultaneously reminiscent of both Oatley and Arcadia. The territory's trees make a reappearance. Figures hide in the shadows of the buildings like the inhabitants of the Blasted Lands. The talisman invokes Wolf by beckoning Jack to come right here and now. Even the the undulating naked woman could be interpreted as a dark mirror version of the sickly Lily Kavanaugh. The trial of the Agent Court is incredibly tense with sea monsters, vampire knights, multiple worlds, talking spiders, earthquakes. It's masterfully done, and by this point the book is so electric you can't put it down. Your fingers are locked on. With all of the tension and thrilling page-turning scenarios unfolding, it's easy to miss the craftsmanship on display. Just examine uh, the text structure on page 692. First, as Jack and Jason flip back and forth, King and Straub repeat the sentence, Come to me, then. One command for each incarnation. 
More so, they structure the text to reinforce the effect of Jack flipping into Jason, then again for Jason flipping back to Jack, with the two phrases slipped through and slipped back into mirroring each other, each word descending down the page before concluding with the character's name, first Jason, then Jack. The ending is incredibly well-paced, from the assault on the agent court to the battle against the knights, the revelation of all worlds, the universe-wide reaction from those that loved Jack and those that wished him ill, to the destruction of the town, the satisfying victory over Sunlight Gardner whose face melts off Raiders of the Lost Ark style, the ultimate confrontation with Morgan, the destruction of Oatly and Smokey Updike whose eyes explode in his head. It's awesome. It's awesome. To the ultimate return to Arcadia where he, he reunites with his mother and saves her life and boom, mic drop, walk off stage. You know, ultimately, you know, the, it's, it's the story of healing, you know, when the two worlds, the, the two paths, right, can become one. That's, that's what the story's about. Um, the entire time, you know, just a stray thought here, I, I just couldn't help but think of Pinocchio and the similarity between the two stories. I referenced Pinocchio earlier, and this is what it's about. You know, I mean, the Blue Fairy sends Pinocchio off to become a real boy, just as Speedy does with Jack both characters leaving their single parent behind at home. Gideon and Honest John are two memorable villainous characters who swoop in and imprison Pinocchio by tricking him into thinking that he has a job rather than slavery, just as Smokey Updike tricked and imprisoned Jack. This only leads to greater imprisonment and hellish consequences uh, as in Pinocchio, the boys on Pleasure Island find themselves transformed and cast into a life of slavery, exactly what we see happen to Jack at Sunlight Gardener's home. So just a couple similarities that, that are there inherent in the DNA of, of the talisman. So now I want to talk about the characters before getting into the, the kingisms. So Jack is our archetypal hero, the chosen one, with the forgotten past he referenced as daydreams. The dreams allude to an attempted kidnapping of his attackers transforming before him. By page 20, the authors have hinted a great deal of supernatural content which works as we know there's a world just behind the one which resembles our Earth. And Jack is the only one who can save Lily and Laura because like all great fantasy heroes, he's special. Luke Skywalker was the new Jedi. Harry Potter was the only one to survive Voldemort. And Jack is the only one that had a twinner that died. Well, the only hero that had a twinner that died. Um, Richard had a twinner that died, but he's not our hero. Jack, the boy, is motivated by his desire to save his mother, which is necessary in the success of this novel because Jack, the hero, is motivated to claim the talisman, which is known as a MacGuffin. According to Wikipedia, in fiction, a MacGuffin is a plot device in the form of some goal, desired object, or other motivator that the protagonist pursues, often with little or no narrative ex explanation. The specific nature of a MacGuffin is typically unimportant to the overall plot. The most common type of MacGuffin is an object, place, or person. Other, more abstract types include money, victory, glory, survival, power, love, or some explained driving force. The novel might be named a talisman, but it's merely a plot device to get our character from point A to point B. The story, the emotion, and the character arcs come from the journey to the talisman. The talisman itself is almost just an afterthought. Now Jack is our wish fulfillment fantasy, especially if you read it at his age, which I did at the first time of reading. So it wasn't Jack that flipped into the territories, it was me. 
as it was for anyone that ever went to Wonderland with Alice, Oz with Dorothy, or Hogwarts with Harry. And Jack's arc, I would say, is masterfully handled. Never do the authors let us forget that despite his power, he's just a boy, and as a child, he's vulnerable in both worlds, as evidenced early on by the cruelness at the hands of Osmond's whip, his encounter with the trees, or even our world, when he curls up and cries out of loneliness. And as soon as he cries out that time in the barn, he begins to toughen, strengthen, and grow. The authors detail how he grew from childhood through adolescence into adulthood in the span of a week after that lonely night in the barn. Jack soon begins to change. As he strengthens spiritually and physically, he also builds up a type of charge, growing more powerful in stature, which causes him to stand out more in the minds of those with whom he comes into contact. His inner resilience only grows stronger as the novel progresses. While he might have his moments of doubt and loneliness, he never loses his bravery or calm demeanor even in the face of chaos. When thrown into the Sunlight Gardener home for boys, he's confronted and assaulted by Sonny Singer, who threatens him. Jack's response is, yeah, I think I got it. Aren't we supposed to get more clothes? And then with cold pragmatism, he thinks, remembering the strike of both Sonny and his master, you and Osmond, someday. You know, when Sonny attempts to bully Jack into submission, he finds that Jack will be difficult, if not impossible, to break. And Jack continues to grow more powerful, as evidenced by the scene in The Blasted Lands, in which he enacts his rage fuel revenge against Morgan's wolves. From the bottom of, uh, you'll find it from the bottom of page um, 581 to the top of 582. 581. Jack opened his mouth and cried out for Uncle Tommy Woodbine, run down in the street, for an unknown carter, whipped to death in a muddy courtyard, for Ferd Janklow, for Wolf, dead in Sunlight Gardener's filthy office, for his mother, but most of all, he discovered, for Queen Laura, who was also his mother, and for the crime that was being carried out in the body of the territories. He cried out as Jason, and his voice was thunder. Tear them up! Jack Sawyer, Jason de Loessian, bellowed and opened fire on the left. That's awesome. The scene culminates with the triumph of white magic over the sickness of the blasted lands personified by Ruel Gardner, who is clearly more and less than human. Jack's coin as a, of a... Um, sorry, pretty tired today, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, Jack's coin is a talisman of its own, and fueled by all things good, it becomes a conduit of the energy that Jack has charged up with every bit of determination, bravery, and perseverance since he began the journey. Like countless fantasy stories that have come before and after, the ending comes with revelation, with Jack understanding the significance of his role in his own story, which can be found at the bottom of page uh, 614 to 615. He stopped, turned Richard by the shoulders, and stared at him, his eyes blazing. Richard tried to draw away from him for a moment, then stopped, entranced by the fiery beauty on Jack's face. Suddenly, briefly, Richard believed that all things might be possible. Suddenly, briefly, he felt healed. What? he whispered. Some things are not excluded. Some people are not excluded. They are, well, single-natured. That's the only way I can think of to say it. They're like it, the talisman, single-natured. Me, I'm single-natured. I had a twinner, but he died. Not just in the territories, 
but in all worlds. But this one, I know that. I feel that. My dad knew it too, I think. I think that's why he called me Traveling Jack. When I'm here, I'm not there. When I'm there, I'm not here. And Richard, neither are you. You know, so he realizes that he is single-natured, and there's the, the revelation. Um, and I'm going to talk more about Jack and his strength um, later when I start talking about the Dark Tower. But Jack is a great character, and I'll, again, um, not only will I talk about him in the Dark Tower, but I'm going to talk about him in the Stephen Kingism section, because um, the boy hero is not the, the first time we see his character and won't be the last. Now, I want to talk about Speedy. Um, so going back to what I said about the this being and um, the, the hero's journey archetype, uh, Speedy is our archetypal mentor, right? You know, he's our Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's our Yoda, our Gandalf, Dumbledore. Choose one. That, that's who he is. Um, our Morpheus. Uh, it's a difficult character to include in stories nowadays, I think. Um, on one hand, they need to contain knowledge but can't reveal all the knowledge they hold because the only thing that would contribute is an exposition dump that would render the hero's journey completely pointless. Because it's the journey, after all, that matters, not the destination. And the mentor has the information found, if not at the destination, then close enough. A lot of the time, you watch movies with these types of characters and say to yourself, why doesn't he just tell him? Because from a narrative standpoint, he or she just can't. If he or she tells the hero, then like I said, it renders the journey meaningless. And from a narrative standpoint, the mentor has to dole out information in bits to keep the reader coming back for more. He's our drug dealer of information in that sense. But still, it's a difficult role because the mentor exists and acts almost as if he knows he's in a story and knows he can't divulge all the information at once. There's a balance between cryptic and frustrating, right? Obi-Wan and Yoda work well as mentors because they can't reveal the information to Luke for fear that realization that Darth Vader is his father will drive him to the dark side or end with his death. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. Uh, their motivations require them to be cryptic. Speedy's motivations aren't clear, and as a result, what he tells Jack and what he doesn't tell Jack becomes a slight problem. The authors recognize this, and it causes them to try to explain it, but to me it's still a cop-out when they write, I can't tell you what I don't know or what I'm not allowed to tell. So that, to me, it's just, like I said, it's just it's problematic. But one thing that I love about Speedy is his complete dismissal of Sloat, referring to him as bloat and groat. By purposefully failing to reference his name correctly, he diminishes his power, and in doing so, the action reminds Jack on what to keep his focus on, not Sloat, but the talisman, and the rescue of the queen, the territories, and his own mother. Speedy presents Jack with his quest, and the rules which he'll have to follow. Stay in the territories when he can, watch out for strangers, never go into the air, get the talisman. Here's your burden, here's your cross. Drop her, Jack, and all be lost. And yet, Speedy treats it as just a job, just a task. As in the seconds after he drops the bombshell, he has to go back to work on the carousel. So I love that duality there of life and death, universes at stake, importance. But, hey, it's just a task. You just, you gotta get it done. Now I want to talk about Morgan. The threat of Morgan is teased from the beginning. As I read the book, I was shocked at how much I had forgotten about him. Morgan Sloat is one of King's greatest villains. 
ever put to paper, and he's not one that's talked about. You know, I mean, he's referenced by the second page, and nearly on every page subsequently after, to the point he isn't so much a character that Lily is running from, but a force. When Jack begins to acknowledge the existence of the territories as something other than daydreams, Sloat begins to exert more control, projecting his consciousness, voice, and thoughts towards Jack, and I doubt it's coincidence that when the sand drains away to reveal an eye, it's supposed to invoke the all-powerful nature of Sauron from Lord of the Rings, a trilogy much adored by King. Because this novel is one that adheres to the rules of a fantasy novel, it's no surprise that King and Straub apply characteristics of Sauron's um, presentation by Tolkien onto Sloat himself. If the Talisman were an animated movie, it's not hard to picture Sloat as a Disney villain, manipulative, murdering our hero's father for his own ends, wanting to, to uh, control and conquer and reign. And there's a great description of him on page 85. Palms wet, cramped by curled-in fingers. Mornings, Sloat often found his palms tattooed with dented bruises left by his fingernails. The others had made him feel like a clenched fist. Those morning bruises were shadowy little photographs of his soul. As a college student, Sloat directed two plays whose reviews are as synonymous with the character traits of the director himself. A furious confusion, churning, cynical, sinister, and almost unbelievably messy. Whereas Morgan Sloat is portrayed as aggressive and dangerous, his ambition pushing him into a role of a would-be conqueror. His alter ego is teased throughout much of the book, a mysterious, powerful presence with subtle supernatural ability, for instance, the ability to detect something amiss. Halfway through the book, King and Straub increase Morgan's threat level. Not only can he flip between worlds, and not only is he amassing power in both as well, it's now revealed that what happens to be a toy key in our world is a lightning rod in the next. And not only can he flip between worlds, he can also push his way between worlds. And it's kind of an issue when he does that for me because it kind of breaks the rules that have been established in The Talisman. Jack and Richard, because of their single nature, can flip. And when they flip, the, the corresponding geography, they, they don't, they're not stuck in someone else's body. Right? They're able to move physically through the other worlds. Whereas the twinners are stuck, the consciousness goes between these two conduits. So wherever the conduits are, that's where they have to be. But then all of a sudden, Morgan has this ability to push through the world. And when he pushes through the world, Morgan of Oris can be there as well. It, it, to me, it's never fully explained why he has that ability other than because he's the evil one. No, he's not even the evil. He's just he's a bad guy in this world. So that's um, that was kind of an issue that I had. Regardless, regardless, I, I still I still love the character. Um, and Morgan's ambitions are both familiar in a real world context and super villainish in their own right. Right. So on one hand, you have the coke snorting Morgan Sloat obsessed with land and money and control and power, attempting to connive Lily into signing over her share of the company. So this event in our world would cause a ripple effect into the next, where Queen, where Queen Laura would die and Oris would take control. But for all intents and purposes, the corporate takeover is something that we've seen countless times in crime dramas. 
However, this is offset with the sweeping ambitions of a dimension-hopping megalomaniac, um, as evidenced on page 537. And he, Morgan Sloat, would finally have the canvas his talents deserved. For a second, he saw himself spreading his arms over starry vastness, over worlds folded together like lovers on a bed, over all that the talisman protected, and all that he had coveted so that when he'd bought the agent court years back, Jack could get all of that for him. Sweetness, glory. Right? So he just, the, the idea of him standing over worlds, uh, that's the depths to which Morgan will go. Now, Lily. Let's talk about Lily. How do we feel about Lily? On one hand, she knows enough to run from Morgan, knowing on some level how much of a threat he is. However, she's negligent of Jack, who spends most of his time in Arcadia wandering the boardwalk and befriending strangers. There's an alternate version of the story where, in his travels around town, he's abducted and murdered. Now, thankfully, this isn't that story. In this story, she's doing what she can to hold on, Arcadia representing the decaying health and the decay of the justifications of a life she is aware of, but until that point has chosen to ignore, the life of dimension-hopping husbands and sons. I've spoken at length about this novel following the rules of a fantasy story. This allows characters to be able to get away with certain things due to the conventions of the genre. For instance, only Jack can save the day, or Speedy can give Jack only so much information, or in this case, a mother lets her son go off on a mysterious quest in an attempt to save her. King and Straub attempt to explain it with the following. The mother had agreed to his going. She had agreed, she had given him permission to take this journey, and as he walked through the crossfire of the deskman's glare, he fully understood why. He had not mentioned the talisman, not explicitly, but even if he had, if he had spoken of the most lunatic aspect of this mission, she would have accepted that too. And if he'd said that he was going to bring back a foot-long butterfly and roast it in the oven, she'd have agreed to eat roast butterfly. It would have been an ironic but real agreement. And this part showed the depth of her fear that she would grasp at such straws. But she would grasp because on some level she knew that these were bricks, not straws. His mother had given him permission to go because somewhere deep inside her she too knew about the territories. So the explanation's there. It's kind of flimsy to me. It isn't necessarily their fault. You know, if they need to have their 12-year-old hero flee across the country, then you need to be able to explain that somehow. And there's no denying the bittersweet quality to her consent of the quest itself. In fact, it serves to highlight the more fantastical nature of the story. But still... This isn't a story that takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or in Middle-earth. There are some societal structures that exist within this setting, modern-day America, so no matter how you play it, because of that setting, regardless of the genre, it will never feel right that a mother will simply let her son go off on a quest like this. Which leads me to believe that, does Lily even have to be, does she have to give him permission? Right? Can't Jack just take off, or can Jack be motivated because Lily falls into a coma? Right? There, there, there are things that could have happened that, to me, would have felt a little bit more organic that a son would go off across the country and leave his mother behind. And it's not that he's leaving her behind that I find, you know, 
unbelievable. It's that she would let him do it. Now I want to talk about Osmond. Okay, he's first mentioned on page one hundred six as a dangerous man employed by the territory's twinner of Morgan, Morgan of Oris. It's suggested that he's responsible for the death of Jack's twinner, which nearly took his own life. By referencing him, it sets the stage for his introduction, and by that point, the legend of Osmond has already grown. He makes his full introduction during a moment of tension when the captain of the Outer Guards is attempting to get Jack out of sight before he can be spotted by Osmond himself. And just as Jack is about to escape, Osmond shows up. By revealing that the captain of the Outer Guards, a man who has been revealed to be tough and formidable, is afraid of Osmond, it's a great way to demonstrate the thin man's threat level. And afraid he should be, because Osmond is crazy with a capital C. His insanity is so over the top, it can't be explained by any condition found within the DSM-5. It's just that theatrical type of insane, marked by the unpredictability and danger, and when he begins whipping Jack, it gets personal. One of Osmond's defining traits is repetition. In his introduction, he on multiple occasions refers to Jack as a bad boy. Stephen, as a goat's penis, repeats the term axiomatic, and asks the captain if he has gleaned the events. The repetition reveals a mind that's slightly stuck, a person who likes to hear himself talk, and this character trait helps reinforce the twinning found within the book. The repetition is used as a tip-off when we are introduced to Reverend Gardner, who speaks with the same style of repetition, repeating the question of Jack having been a bad boy. With Reverend Gardner's feeling of having met Jack before, King and Straub play with a very real-world phenomenon. I'm sure that at least once we've all run into strangers that um, we recognize or instantly connect with or perhaps instantly dislike. It's fun to think that we're filled with these sensations because we all have twinners who have encountered their twinners somewhere in the territories. Now, Osmond slash Gardner, um, they're, they're, they're interchangeable. And, and by the end of the novel, they're, they're the, the worlds are flipping so much back and forth that they're the same person. It's incredible. It's incredible. And ultimately, Morgan might have been responsible for the death of Jack's father, but it's Osmond and Sunlight Gardner, actually, that, that did it. Um, so Jack's... Jack's revenge is is well earned and and very felt. Um, it's a great moment in the novel, and it's it's a death that we've been rooting for because this guy is awful. I referenced earlier that Morgan is one of King's most um, a, a character that's never really written about it, a really good villain, but um, he is overshadowed completely by Osmond and Gardner. These are incredible, incredible characters. Now I want to talk about Wolf. Ah, uh, Wolf. Uh, look, you know, I've talked about Wolf already, but um, I just gotta say, reading this book for the third time does not make it any easier. There are deaths in Stephen King's books that just don't affect me. And there are some that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Ones I still distinctly remember the sensations of reading the first time around. You know, I'm not gonna go into the details about those particular deaths because I don't want to spoil plot points in books that I haven't reviewed yet, but needless to say, Wolf is one of them. And when I turned the page to close out one chapter and saw that the next chapter was entitled Wolf, I felt an immediate lump in my throat. It's a weird sensation of time travel, knowing I'm heading back to experience my friendship with this character all over again, knowing I can't do anything about his fate, knowing I have to watch him die all over again. 
So for all intents and purposes, and this is why Wolf, I think, is such a strong character, you can break this book down to its bare bones, and you'll see relatable relationships devoid of any supernatural elements. A sick mother, a lonely imaginative boy, the creepy uncle, and with Wolf, it's the boy's loyal dog. And that's what makes his death so bad. He's not just a good friend, he's made up of the qualities reminiscent of man's best friend, an innocence and loyalty that should shield him from death as if these characteristics should give the character a free pass, much in the way that we feel about a beloved pet and how they should get a free pass from mortality. Now, Wolf, like every character in the story, has a twinner of sorts, or at least reinforces the doubling up of things in the book. And in this case, he has two aspects of himself, the wolf we know and love and the animal wolf, the werewolf. And we get a sense of repetition in the novel at the end when we see his his brother also named wolf um so things just really come full circle wolf great character great great character and like i said earlier this is a good book but it's a great book because of wolf now i want to talk about richard um after the death of wolf jack reunites with richard who serves the story as another of jack's twinners this time figuratively the writers go out of their way to paint Richard as defined by order, with his only goal in life to classify the things of the world in order to make sense of it all. Jack, on the other hand, wants to explore not a literal magic, but the magic of life, and have the emotion and sensation that living can bring um, to define him. In fact, so bound by order is he that King and Straub summarize him perfectly with the following line. Jack had an uneasy moment wondering if it were really possible to talk about the territories with someone so tightly buttoned that he tucked his sweaters beneath his belts. The cause of Richard's need for order springs from a repressed memory he's had of a visit to the territories which plays out like a bad acid trip to Narnia. Walking into his father's closet, he emerges into a landscape of Lovecraftian horrors, alien insects, and tentacled creatures. Richard is touched by one of the creatures, and his repression of the memory reads like an allegory for child abuse. The tragic thing about Richard is his mirroring or twinning of Jack. His existence is threatened simply by virtue of not being Jack. In a book with so many parallels, doubling, juxtapositions, foils, and repetition, it's no surprise that Jack's effort to save his mother caused Richard to lose his father. It's the inclusion of Richard that grounds this novel in our reality, the anchor that prevents the ship from sailing off into the horizon of fantasy. Jack's journey follows the patterns of the fantasy quest, and while Jack has experienced lost with the death of Wolf, keep in mind that Wolf was a magical character. His death, while raw and painful, exists on a level of the book that's pure imagination, one in the world of fantasy. It's the death of Boromir, or Sirius Black. Richard, however, is not a magical character. He's one of us, even more so than Jack, who is also a magical character, because Jack is the chosen one. He's Frodo, he's Bilbo, he's Luke Skywalker, he's Neo, he's Harry Potter. His abilities cast him out of both worlds as a, reg as a regular and elevate him into something else entirely. Remember, as things go, he's a Jesus analog. Richard, however, has no powers. He has no impact on the cosmos. It doesn't look down on him either favorably or with malicious intent. It's indifferent to him because he's nobody. And his only involvement with a tale of greatness 
is simply because he's the son of the story's villain. Not only is he not the hero, but his father is the loathsome individual trying to take over two worlds who left your best friend fatherless. For Richard, no aspect of this journey is magical. Each step for Jack takes him closer to his goal, the fulfillment of a wish to save a kingdom, a queen, and his mother. For Richard, each step is a step closer to horrible truths and a darker future filled with guilt and anguish. So tragic is his inclusion in the story that the narrator has to show his hand at one point, referencing himself for the first time. The breakdown of Richard on the train tracks brings the narrative to a screeching halt because we finally realize that lives are being thoroughly ruined, that Richard's heart is now as poisoned as the blasted lands themselves. The narrator collapses, I'm sorry, the narrative collapses around these two boys, and the narrator, like I said, interjects himself as as if to soothe the reader or Richard himself on page 607. Jack, help me, he said. I feel like my leg is caught in some stupid, stupid trap and I... Then Richard fell on his knees and with his hair in his tired face and Jack got down there with him. And I can bear to tell you no more, only that they comforted each other as well as they could. And as you probably know from your own bitter experience, that is never quite good enough. Jack might be the chosen one, but it isn't the only one to undertake a journey. Richard undergoes a dramatic character arc himself. In fact, one could argue that by the end, between the two, Richard is the more resilient. Having learned his father is actively trying to kill them, burning with fever, poisoned with rashes and sores, he presses on, displaying perseverance that he did not possess upon first meeting him. So there are characters. Um, and now what I want to do... Uh, now that I've finished the characters, I'm going to get into the Stephen Kingisms. And boy, there are a lot of Stephen Kingisms. So for those of you who are joining us um, for the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, you have now made it over an hour into this review, so thanks for sticking around. Stephen Kingisms are the uh, the tricks and, and tropes and traits that Stephen King um, uses from one book to the next. Um, so I'm just going to go through them. Number one is the amusement park, all right? This is not the first time, uh, I'm sorry, it's not the last time that we're going to see an amusement park in Stephen King's works. Most recently, we've seen it in Revival. Before that, we saw it in Joyland. So this is, this is something that we've seen that we'll see again. Number two, like I referenced earlier, is our boy hero, okay? Uh, here we have Jack. We've seen the boy hero with... Um, Jake Chambers, we've seen it with Mark Petrie, we're going to see it with the characters of It. So the, the boy as the receptacle for magic that can combat the evils of the world is something that Stephen King loves to play with. Um, in terms of references, uh, Stephen King uh, refers to an unpublished novel at the time entitled Blaze. Uh, that had to have been on his mind when he refers to a movie that Lily had starred in entitled Blaze. So number four is the man-boy relationship as seen in Salem's Lot. Um, ben Mears and Mark Petrie had a sort of father-son relationship. Um, here uh, we have Speedy and Jack. 
We see it with Roland the Gunslinger and Jake Chambers, and most recently we've seen it in Revival. Number five, we have the good-hearted simple friend. Um, here it's Wolf, clearly, uh, but we're going to see it again um, with Tom from The Stand. Both even come with their very own catchphrases because M-O-O-N spells right here and now. So, um, look, I want to talk about childhood and the magic of childhood. And that's what so much of Stephen King's books are about, the magic of childhood. When I was a kid, I used to just play, okay? And I, don't get me wrong, I, I, I had video games and I loved watching television, but I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I could just go into the backyard for hours and just imagine. And every child has the opportunity to create an imaginary world and fill it with imaginary characters. And here, Jack actually gets to go to his. And that's something that I find awesome. Number seven is the alpha male losing control. Here it's Sloat, but in other works, it's Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone, it's Buster Keaton in Needful Things, and it's Big Jim Rennie from Under the Dome. Number eight is the image of fists leaving fingernail marks on the palms. Usually it's bloody crescent moons, but here, as I described earlier, um, they're bruises. Number nine, um, the character being stuck alone in a dark tunnel. Uh, Jack's trip through Oatly Tunnel is reminiscent of Larry's trek through the Lincoln Tunnel in The Stand. Number 10 is our catchphrase or our repeated phrase, which we see with right here and now. We'll see it with um, M-O-O-N spells moon, he thrusts his fists against the posts, uh, they all float, something happened, uh, they're all going to laugh at you, take your medicine. So uh, it's just something that Stephen King does. He even has another one here, Fushing Thief, uh, which is something that the, the, the spider says. Number 11 is the, uh, the name of a character, uh, Dash Thing. So here we have the Elroy Thing. Uh, we've seen it once before. I can't remember what book it is already. I think it was in Pet Cemetery. Yeah, it was Pet Cemetery. Um, and we're get, definitely going to see it again. So that's it. It just represents the 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 monstrousness and the inhumanity of of a character. Number twelve, uh, werewolves, as seen most recently in Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, we're going to see a werewolf soon enough in it, and much much later in Wolves of the Kala, kind of. Number 19 is number 13. Uh, when Jack and Wolf are hitching, the driver mentions putting the radio on channel 19. So for uh, Dark Tower fans, they'll know the significance of that number. Number 14, told you there was a lot. Landscapes imbued with power. Usually we have dark forces within a land, such as the Micmac burial ground in Pet Cemetery, the rows of stones in the short story N. But during the scene in which Wolf first transforms, he encounters ancient sacred land on which he refused to kill. Number 15, the villain screaming with italicized capital letters. Sunlight Garner's mania is captured with the look of the text, and King will do the same with Randall Flagg, George Stark, and the Crimson King. Number 16 is the villainous preacher, as seen before with Sylvia Pitson, Margaret White, Charlie Jacobs, and others. Number seven, sorry, number 17, dangers in the pit. 
as seen in one of Morgan's pits in the territories, as well as the China pit from Desperation and the Regulators. The visual of the pit bears a resemblance to an image found within Revival as well. Number 18, um, I had mentioned werewolves before, but this is specific to werewolves in a chapel, first in Cycle of the Werewolf and now in this book. Number 19 is Death of a Child. Uh, we've seen it in Cujo Pet Cemetery, and here with uh, the characters Jason, Rushton, and Morgan's son. Uh, number 20 is, is the Jesus Christ stand-in. Here it's Jack. We will see it again with the Green Mile, um, with a character's name a little bit more on the nose of John Coffey. Number 21, still going, uh, is Dim. Character being dim uh, means that he or she has the ability of near invisibility, which is seen here with the character of Ruel, and as seen in Eyes of the Dragon, The Stand, and the Dark Tower series. Number 22, Boys following railroad tracks. Richard and Jack, when they flip back to our world, follow a set of train tracks reminiscent of the boys from the body. Number 23 is the evil building. The Marston House, the Overlook, the House on Nabold Street, the Black House, and the Black Hotel. Number 24, The Ritual of Spiders. King and Straub write, once Jack has entered the agent court, he had entered a strange dancing ritual whose conclusion felt was not at all preordained. A second later, he comes into contact with a frightening speaking spider. The reason this is a kingism is because in it, there is something called the ritual of Chud, which has everything to do with a entity which takes the form of a spider. 25. When Jack is flipping between the worlds in the conclusion of the agent court, the boys, I'm sorry, the, the authors write, I'm flickering through each of them probably too fast to see and leaving a sound like a hand clap sonic boom behind me as the air closes on the vacancy where for a millisecond I took up space. This is a description he'll use again when a character suddenly disappears most noticeably in the stand. Number 26 is one that I still can't get over and still drives me insane, and I'm going to be a little bit vague here, but number 26 is a villain literally screaming eee at the end of a book here, and I'll just say elsewhere in order to avoid massive Stephen King universe spoilers. But the villain literally screaming eee. Number 27 um, is the connection to other Stephen King works. Now, I'm going to get into possible Dark Tower connections later. I'm telling you, I'm going to get there. Um, but there's one more that's not found necessarily in this book, um, but another one, and that's Tommyknockers. Now, bear with me. In Tommyknockers, the main character, Guard, recounts a time when he woke up hungover on a New Hampshire beach where he met a young boy. That young boy, of course, is Jack. The fact that Jack appears in the Tommyknockers means that by association, it is therefore connected to a number of other Stephen King works. In the Tommyknockers, one of the characters spots a clown in the sewer of a nearby town, Derry, Maine. This means that the events of it take place in the same universe as the Tommyknockers, therefore the same universe as the Talisman. In It, during a flashback scene, Dick Holleran from The Shining makes an appearance, which means that The Talisman takes place in the same universe as The Shining. 
The Shining, of course, has a sequel, Dr. Sleep, in which King references his son, Joe Hill's novel, Nosferatu, which in turn references Derry, Midworld, Horns' Treehouse of the Mind, and the Key House in Lovecraft, Massachusetts, which is the setting from the comic book Lock and Key. Other connections springing from it would also include Insomnia, which would connect it to the events of the Dark Tower, which includes a pet cemetery reference, which springs off a number of references and connections, and Bag of Bones, which features a cameo from an Insomnia character. And the novel Dreamcatcher also touches upon Derry. Furthermore, because Jack shows up in the Tommyknockers, that means that Jack exists in the same world as Charlie McGee from Firestarter as the agency known as The Shop appears in the Tommyknockers. I'm sure there's others, but at this time, I can't remember off the top of my head. Now, as we've seen in The Talisman and also in The Dark Tower, we know that there are an infinite number of worlds. So the references and connections above don't necessarily mean that they're all existing on the same planet, meaning that the clown spotted in the sewer of Tommyknockers is not necessarily the same clown that we read about in It. While it's still a clown in a sewer in a town called Derry, it just might exist on another Earth altogether. Now, the, the quote that I'm going to give is just very quickly... Very, very brief, but I think that it's incredible, incredible life advice. And that's what Speedy says to Jack, and it is the following. Get the talisman, son. It's going to be your burden, but you got to be bigger than your burden. That is great words to live by. And I think that that embodies who Jack is. And Jack is the heart of this book, therefore the quote of the book. Okay, so guys, that's all I've got for this week, kind of. Um... What I'm going to do next, I'm going to close out this particular episode for anyone that has not read The Dark Tower. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to um, record a separate bonus episode that I'm going to release at the same time as this review. So what that means is if you have not read The Dark Tower, do not listen to the bonus episode. If you have listened to this to, I'm sorry, if you have read The Dark Tower, you can finish this episode and go straight to the bonus episode as I discuss how the talisman is related to The Dark Tower. Um, I'm going to break that down. So, again, if you have been interested in reading The Dark Tower or are halfway through The Dark Tower, um, don't go near the bonus episode because I will spoil the events of The Dark Tower. So, it'll be there when you finish. You can come back. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. And if you are, in fact, jumping off now and you're just going to wait till next week and not go to the bonus episode, have a fantastic week. I'll see you, I'll see you here again um, when I review Stephen King's second collection of short stories, Skeleton Crew. So um, in the meantime, if you have not done so already, feel free to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, Tumblr. Uh, or you can write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and share your thoughts and experiences. And if not, and you just want to listen, go ahead and do so. It's fine with me. In the meantime, everyone have a fantastic week, and I will see you here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.